Well, better late than never, right? Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we geek explain it. I'm your host, Eric Zana, and today's episode is late. And I know that, and I'm sorry, I do apologize. Um, it's, this week has been a little bit crazy. Uh, I started the week um, assuming that I was going to have a normal week with a normal schedule, and that is not what happened. Um, I spent... The majority of this week on set at uh, CBS Studios here in Los Angeles. Um, it was a welcome surprise, but a uh, surprise nonetheless. And unfortunately, that meant that I wasn't able to record. Um, so I, <laughs> I feel so bad because this uh, Castlevania episode just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But... Um, so today we are recording a special weekend edition of the Geek Explained podcast featuring, as I mentioned before, the long-awaited review for Castlevania Season 2 on Netflix. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Castlevania is a series based off of the popular video game. And uh, this series has been drawing a lot on the adventures of Trevor Belmont and his battles against Dracula and all of the stuff that happens in between. So season one was released uh, two years ago, one year ago, something like that, uh, a while ago. And um, this season, season two, dropped uh, halfway through October and it's really strange because at least for me i haven't heard a lot about it from other people uh a lot of people have been really excited for this series or for this season uh just based off how good season one was including myself i really enjoyed season one i thought it was a great great uh adaptation of the original castlevania series as well as providing its own anime style spin on it uh it is being done it is being produced by a uh an american studio which i think is really interesting and you can kind of tell um in both like this uh the storytelling the choreography the animation style but um this season was much anticipated uh the season one review that we did on this podcast if you haven't listened to that go ahead and check that out uh after you are done with this one or you could pause it here and check out that one first if you want to be uh neurotic and chronological like i am um but the episode where we reviewed season one of this show uh is one of my most listened to episodes so thank you for that uh really excited it also let me know that you guys really dig this show and that you really wanted me to um review the season two so here we are uh not a moment too soon Though I'm sure, as some people have pointed out to me, uh, they have been waiting with bated breath for this. Uh, 
So uh, we'll go ahead and dive right in. I've got my notes right here. And the first thing that I have to bring up, and it pains me to say this, is I didn't enjoy season two as much as I enjoyed season one. Uh, that's not to say that this wasn't a good season. The show was good. The show was really good. Um, quality, animation, voice acting, good stuff. Um, but for me, season one, maybe because it was supposed to be a tighter story, uh, it just it resonated with me more. Uh, this season was double the length of the first season. The first season was uh, four 20 to 25 minute episodes. Uh, this season was double that, eight episodes, all kind of varying in length from 20 to 30 minutes. And I don't know if it's just because they had more room and they needed more filler, but the uh, the season didn't have the same feel to me that the first season did. But I've got my notes set up in uh, good and bad. Uh, I've got I wanted to give it a fair shake as well as point out the stuff that I thought could have been improved on. So we'll start with the good here, and the best part of this show for me personally was Dracula. Dracula, more so in this season than in season one, was set up as the main character for this season, uh, which I think is interesting with him being the villain and all, but or the, uh, the tragic hero or the tragic villain. Uh, but Dracula was set up for this season to be the main character, and in that he got the most screen time, he got the most character development, and he got the most uh, attachment as a viewer, from a viewer's perspective, he was the person who you connect with the most, the person who you get the most time with, and the person who you can um, really empathize with throughout. Uh, season one really kind of set him up as you know the final boss in a video game, drawing off of those video game uh, that video game DNA that you're going to fight through all of these beasts and all these creatures and all these monsters, make your way to Dracula's castle, and you're going to fight him. Which, I guess for me, I was okay with. I was okay with there being a strict kind of uh, progression to this, but the show decided to kind of subvert that, and the uh, director of all this has said that with this season he wanted to deviate a little bit more from the video game and therefore the video game format so i was surprised but i really enjoyed the amount of time that we got with dracula to really paint him as this kind of tragic figure uh going through my notes here there was a lot of um pathos that we got with dracula for this season that i guess we didn't really get with season one uh we did get little snippets of him here and there he mainly was the driving force behind episode one and after that there wasn't a whole lot with him uh the opening of season two just like season one starts with lisa tepesh uh and i was so excited to see lisa again i thought she was uh, she's a great character. Uh, her voice actress is amazing, and we didn't get enough time with her in season one. And I understood why, because she is kind of the uh, the impetus for the entire season. But 
seeing her again was a welcome return and a welcome surprise and i really liked getting to see her kind of interacting because we really got from the first episode we saw her meeting dracula and then it flashed to her being killed and we didn't really get any of that time between we know that she kind of set herself up as like the the village doctor and she sent uh vlad away to kind of see the world and experience what humans are really about but here we get to see what starts off as her going through her day-to-day thing helping people out and then come to find out that this scene is the night where she was captured and tortured and killed and it's just it's heartbreaking because you see those cruel catholic church people come in smash up her uh her lap her home they burn it to the ground they take her and it's you know the next shot is we get uh dracula showing up to the house but i was really um it really sets it up again as a dracula story and i think it's really interesting that they reframe this much like with the uh with the prequels and the star wars movies how the first trilogy was really star wars was luke's story uh, whether or not you saw him as the main character or really enjoyed him the most out of the main characters, I think it's kind of undeniable that the original trilogy was Luke's story. His uh, his start off to heroism, his hero's journey, and ultimately finding and reuniting with his father and stepping into that role as being a Jedi Master. But then when they added in the prequels, the first six episodes suddenly become the rise and fall and redemption of anakin skywalker of darth vader and i think with this second season they really reshaped what we thought the show was going to be in that trevor is our unlikely hero he is going to go on this hero's journey and eventually redeem himself and his family name by slaying dracula but this season really um really turned the entire show not just the season but reframed the first season as well as the tragedy of dracula tepesh and i was really surprised by that but throughout the um throughout the show they show him as this unwilling warmonger they they set up this whole war council around him they show that he is not really involved in the day-to-day war aspect he has proxies that go on and um kind of direct his armies for him where dracula spends most of his time just kind of sulking in his chambers and he really this show really goes on to show just how tired he is as a character and i don't mean that as oh he's played out we're bored of him he's physically exhausted by living he has realized i think that even though maybe this isn't how he uh I'll rephrase how he started the war was through vengeance he's realized that this is almost and they touch on it a couple times that this is almost like his suicide note he's really just doing this to burn away everything to try and feel again or in i guess his second best scenario he gets killed so he can see and be reunited with lisa again and it really is interesting to me how he realizes that he lashed out in anger and in vengeance and throughout the season it really settles into regret he regrets that he had to do all this just to um 
bring himself to this point uh i guess this is a really bad time since we're almost 12 minutes in but there's going to be heavy spoilers in this uh there's going to be heavy spoilers in this review just because i really want to talk about it at length so if you haven't seen season two check it out come back we'll discuss but for me the biggest point that you really get a um you really get a feel for dracula is in episode seven episode seven is where everything just becomes real again uh and you get to see dracula lash out you get to see him in action you get to see him fighting for his life almost and fighting for his vengeance and he goes down swinging he's literally not fighting for his life anymore he is just fighting for his intention he is fighting to um he's fighting for his revenge he's fighting for his mission and watching him just dismantle alucard and sypha and trevor is really really impressive uh he's probably along with alucard the most op character in this entire season which makes it really frustrating when we spend most of the season not with him in present day um and the final kind of uh the final moments of of episode seven where he is having this final duel with alucard and we crash through the castle through multiple rooms until we happen upon alucard's old room and and alucard doesn't seem to be phased by this but dracula realizing that he's in his room just breaks down he breaks down he starts crying and he starts talking to lisa and he's like i'm killing our boy like our son what am i doing i'm killing our son and he's like it really drives the point home that he is the most human character in this entire show and it's weird saying that because you know he's king of the vampires he's this um otherworldly being who set these monsters and these creatures upon the world but he is the most human and flawed character in the show he lashed out in anger not knowing how to um what's the word uh he didn't know how to process his feelings and his emotions at the loss of the love of his life and so he lashed out in anger he started this war realized that it wasn't what he wanted but continued to fight anyway because he thinks that's the only way he can honor lisa the only way that he can see her again is to die in battle and ultimately when it brings him to trying to kill his own son and him realizing that in his anger in his lust for revenge he has brought himself to the point where he's willing to kill the only thing he has left of lisa it really is it's heartbreaking it's sad it's depressing it is incredibly emotional and then when alucard ultimately kills him he seems to reach out for alucard we don't know because he's in this ghostly astral form and it looks very menacing just on the surface level we don't know what exactly he's doing but he reaches out for alucard and then you know trevor you know runs up behind slices off his head and they set his body on fire but it almost seems like he's reaching out for his son just to feel the warmth of his family for one last time it's incredible he's this entire show was based around him 
Uh, next up, we have Isaac. Isaac was the breakout star of this season, and I wasn't... At first, I wasn't sold on him. Isaac is one of uh, two... I can't remember what they're called. They're basically his war chiefs. Uh, him and Hector are his two war chiefs, and Isaac was not exactly a standout in the first couple episodes but as the season goes on he really comes into his own and you really get a feel for him isaac was uh essentially brought up under this um really just horrible and abusive person who found him adopted him and was trying to get him to work for him and isaac in this in his way uh falls in love with his caretaker because he doesn't know any anything like true love but this person cares for him in his own twisted way so isaac falls in love with him and then when the caretaker proves to him that you know he doesn't love him he doesn't care about him isaac lashes out kills him this is mind you he's a kid and so next we see him he's a full-grown adult he is using self-mutilation as a way to focus himself he is taking the uh the bladed I guess it's not bladed, it's like a studded, I don't know, but it's this vicious looking whip that he whips himself with to focus himself and to almost like meditate. And he is just this cold, calculating badass. Uh, multiple occasions, he just rips through scores of people. Um, he takes out one of my least favorite characters in the season, which I'll get to uh, when we get into the bad. But he is just incredible. Uh, he's so also dedicated to Dracula, and we don't really get this confirmation, but it seems like uh, Isaac really latches on to people who give him focus, who give him a direction. And so he is willing to die for dracula they even have this moment where at the very end right before dracula uh fights our heroes uh where isaac is posted up to defend dracula dracula is like you would sacrifice your mortal life for my immortal one and isaac is just like dude you are immortal you have lived so long you have such a knowledge of the world that to lose you would be a complete tragedy and Dracula realizes that this man is willing to die for him, who is willing to die for his proxy war, who is willing to die for something that he didn't start. And so Dracula saves him. He opens up this uh, portal essentially through this mirror and throws Isaac to save him into the desert, far away from the conflict. And Isaac is left there in the desert while Dracula goes on to be killed by uh, Alucard, Sypha, and Trevor. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because you can see how dedicated he is to Dracula's dream. And he ends up finding his way to an oasis. He ends up killing this band of fucking losers who try to kill him and eat him. And just takes control of them, turns them into demons, and by the end of the show, he is riding off into the sunset, basically with this mindset that he's going to create his own army, and he's going to wage his own war in Dracula's name. And it's incredible. He is just a total badass. He is... Inc and I... I'm so happy that he was uh, 
introduced and that he lived through the season because I think he was one of the most uh, complex and most interesting characters. Uh, next up, we have Alucard, Trevor, and Sypha. Um, I'm kind of lumping them all together because they spend the most time with each other, but I loved their whole interaction. Uh, their dialogue, which I'll touch on in a second, uh, was some of the most human and relatable and honest dialogue that they have in this entire show. Uh, there's one moment where <laughs> um, their Alucard and Trevor kind of bicker throughout the entire season, and Sypha's like, "All right, I'm going to go do this. You guys can fucking figure life out, but act no- act normal, act like adults, and I'm going to go." And so she goes and. Alucard and Trevor just like don't treat us like children like we're adults like we're fine and then she walks away and they say something along the lines of like Alucard goes like oh but literally fuck you to hell and Trevor's like oh no I couldn't agree more I hate you so it's like it's just it's great dialogue you really get the sense that they're all together as a team and I was a little disappointed at the fact that they didn't get more time. They weren't really, they weren't really set up or given time to shine. I thought in this season, uh, season one, Trevor was really the star. Trevor was really it was Trevor's story getting to the point where he is ready to take up his Belmont family name to uh, take up their cause against fighting creatures like Dracula, him finding Sypha, him finding Alucard, the three of them pitching together to go fight um, to go fight Dracula. Where in this season it really shifted focus to Dracula and I think uh, the storytelling for Alucard Trevor and Sypha really suffered for that. But the scenes that they do get are great. Uh, Alucard was really i think along with isaac the breakout star for this season he gets out of the three characters he gets the most screen time he is really uh set up as this character who is like his father like dracula consumed with his mission to kill dracula but he still gets time to be quippy he's very uh spock-like in that he looks at things logically and he doesn't mind commenting on how dumb Uh, Trevor is at any given point his relationship with Trevor was great the two of them kind of bounce off each other really well and I think that does that comes down not just to the writing but also the voice acting the voice actors really had great chemistry with each other Uh, Sypha was really kind of set in a babysitter role for this season she didn't really do a whole lot uh, other than provide kind of that middle ground between Trevor and Alucard but she gets a great sequence where she is kind of um, trying to nail down Dracula's moving castle. And it's a great sequence where she's using all of her magic and is f- essentially fighting against the castle that doesn't want to be locked down to one location because it teleports. And she was great. That whole sequence is really, it's nail-biting, it's tense, you really want her to succeed, but you don't know if she can, because she doesn't have a whole lot of self-esteem in herself, and at the very end, her being able to take down and lock down Dracula's castle ultimately provides 
the team with the means to enter it and to def ultimately defeat Dracula. And then she gets a sweet little moment at the end with Trevor where it kind of, without really saying it, implies that they're now beginning a relationship. Uh, I really also liked in season eight, or season eight, episode eight, where she essentially pitches season three to Trevor, where Trevor's like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And she's like, oh, you know what we could totally do? We could roam the countryside. You know, these, there, I'm sure there are monsters that were under uh, Dracula's control that even though they were, aren't anymore and are more than likely trying to kill other people, we should go rescue them and fight them and all this stuff and i'm like okay so she's basically giving us the synopsis for season three i just thought that was really funny and uh she she's very endearing she's very sweet i love the accent that she has and overall no one out of the three of them is unlikable all three of them are great all three of them are endearing characters and i really enjoyed them uh next up i got a I gotta give it up to the animation. The animation was on par, if not better than the first season. The fight choreography was incredible. It was inventive. There's a moment where uh, pretty early on in the season, Alucard and Trevor are fighting these two demons where one of them is essentially a bruiser and the other one's kind of like a bat. He's flying, but he's he's using his feet to latch onto this bruiser. So anytime that Alucard and Trevor have to fight them, um, they have to deal with not only the fact that the uh, bruiser keeps getting essentially chucked at them by the flying one, but that the flying one can attack them at any time and then they can link up again. It's really, like I said, it's, um, it's really impressive. And they continue to do it throughout the season with, like, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's really, I really enjoy it. And I don't want to kind of compare it to anything because there's not anything that I can off the top of my head compare it to but the fight choreography is great they continue to make um, these characters capable yet vulnerable um, there are many times where you get the sense that oh somebody's actually in mortal danger someone's about to get attacked and then you know someone comes in at the nick of time and pulls off this really cool feat that is just incredible to watch uh, most mostly that person swooping in at the last second is Trevor. He gets his uh, he gets his classic whip from the game in this season, and he does some cool shit with it. Cool, cool stuff. Um, he's he's great. In fact, in my notes, I have it's so funny. I have uh, at the top because I was just taking them as I watched. I have at one point. Trevor's so dumb because there's a moment where he's trying to, you know, barricade this door and he doesn't know how to barricade it. So he tries to like set up this plank and it just falls and he tries to set it up again and he falls. And then literally not even like five lines down, I have Trevor's so fucking awesome because he's just pulling off these whip moves, fighting. Essentially, uh, there's this moment in the, um, in the library, the Belmont Library, where Alucard is trying to use the same mirror that Dracula has to pinpoint where the uh, where the castle is, while Sypha is trying to come up with a spell to lock it down, which leaves Trevor as the sole line of defense against all of these demons that suddenly show up to try to kill them. And that episode, this is episode six, where everything really kind of picks up again. 
uh, is just great because it's him being inventive, him fighting as many people as possible, and as soon as he fights one, another one shows up, and he's just like, oh, okay, great, okay, I'm tired. All right, let's do this. So he runs off and does it again, and it's really... I really enjoy it. He's a great character. The three of them work really well together. And he's just... He's great. And fight choreography really complements him as a character. Uh, again, the dialogue is incredible. Uh, the dialogue I really enjoy. They're go, they go from moments of being really profound and really almost Shakespearean to moments of just, like, you know, modern talk where they're, again, like, Alucard and uh, Trevor have some of the most realistic, most human, modern-day dialogue. And I think it's interesting that that kind of is uh, offset and balanced with the more Shakespearean aspects but I think it's I think it's great. I think the dialogue really helps sell everything. The dialogue at certain points gets a little expositiony, but really for the most part, I'll say like nine out of ten times, the exposition is warranted and needed and necessary. Uh, finally, on here I have episodes six and seven, which are for me personally the best episodes in the season. Um, I really like episode six is where everything kind of starts to pick up again. Uh, episode one through five is really um, kind of set up for everything that happens in episode six and episode seven. Episode six is the episode where uh, Trevor's fighting all these beasts while they are setting themselves up to go after Dracula. And then episode seven is that final battle and the uh, the siege on Dracula's castle. So I really enjoyed those episodes, and those were the two best for me. So now we transition over to the bad. Um, I will preface this, I'll put a little disclaimer here, that nothing is unwatchable, nothing is terrible, nothing is, when I say bad, it's just to offset the good. Uh, this is stuff that I think could have been improved upon, stuff that I think really um, kind of dragged the quality down, but none of it is outright unwatchable so the first thing i gotta start off with is the pacing uh the pacing is really slow um there's a lot of flashbacks in this season i would go on to say that i am a huge i'll preface this i am a huge fan of flashbacks i love how a well-placed flashback can provide some character development or a twist or some deeper understanding for a character or an action in the show but there was just so many flashbacks to set up all these different characters and all these different ideas and all of these different plot lines and it was just frustrating at times where i'm like we're spending at least in the first four episodes we're spending more time in flashbacks than we are spending in present day doing stuff that we had spent doing in season one and so the pacing was really off for me and i have it in my notes and i mentioned it a second ago where the f the first episode is fine it gets you set up for everything that you need to know the first episode is great on exposition it's great on setting you up for this is the conflict that's coming but then episodes two through five are so so I don't want to say boring, but they slow down because they're more kind of focused on the intrigue and the um, 
politicking inside of Dracula's uh, War Council and all of the Game of Thrones style betrayal that happens in there. And I just I wasn't I wasn't in for it. I wasn't down for it. It was really I we spent more time in the past than we needed to and it didn't focus enough on the present which bothered me and as soon as it hits episode six i wrote down oh we're picking up again we're going we're going this is great and that's why six and seven are my favorite episodes because there's little to no flashbacks in those episodes it's all not just action but meaningful story progression uh next up the War Council. The War Council really bothered me because in the first episode they really set up this War Council as these guys are going to kick ass and it sets up again this video gamey progression that I was prepared for that I was expecting where it's like okay so we have a video gamey progression where our heroes are going to battle through grunts they're going to get to the castle they're going to have to fight the war chiefs then after or the War Council. Then after that, they're going to fight Isaac and Hector, and then once they get through them, they're going to fight... Maybe Carmelo will be a side thing alongside Isaac and Hector, but then we get to the big boss, and that was how I saw the progression, and I was okay with that. I was fine with that. I enjoy that. I enjoy a progressive story. But they ended up being... having little to no... Um, I don't want to say importance, but yeah, importance. Like, the one character that they actually gave really a name to and actually gave any kind of importance to was Godbrand. And I could not stand Godbrand. I don't know what it was, whether it was the voice actor, the accent, or just what he served in the story, but he was pointless. I didn't understand his character. I didn't like his character. His character meant nothing. He was killed off by Isaac, which again, another point to Isaac. But I just, I couldn't get behind him, and I was, as soon as he was gone, the show was instantly better. So I don't know why they included him. But that really bothered me, and I was really expecting more out of this war council. There's a point where they're going to Brela, and they're betrayed ultimately by uh, Carmilla and her forces. The, um, the kind of bordering moat canal river whatever uh is blessed and turns into holy water killing any of the vampires and they break out a portion of the bridge but then they just go and leave they're like oh well they outsmarted us guess we're going home and that was it like these guys are supposed to be his generals and at multiple occasions we've seen vampires fly and move through the air without having to touch the ground so i don't know why they were just treated like secondary second class soldiers and i just i didn't understand the use of them if they weren't going to be important you should have just had them be just normal grunts some of them have had interesting designs but none of them were really followed up on with that uh i i also don't like to do this but my next point is hector i didn't enjoy hector um he was set up as kind of the one who there was going to be like a collision course between him and Isaac, and it was set up at the start to be like this necromancer badass. But by the end of the series, he was tricked into betraying Dracula, and then he ended up being Carmilla's grunt, and then by the end, he's just Carmilla's slave. And she's like, "You're, I'm going to force you to make me an army. And it's just... 
I really wanted him to be as cool as Isaac because they set them both up to be on the same level. They weren't friends, but they both were of the same prestige, and it looked like they were eventually going to be set on a collision course to fight. And I just... They did nothing with him. They really made him kind of a bitch, and I really was disappointed in that. Uh, next up, I have Carmilla. Uh, and I know this is going to be a controversial controversial pick, but I was not a fan of Carmilla. Uh, they brought her in, and I thought she was interesting in her first couple episodes where they really set her up as this almost Cersei Lannister-style character. But then for the rest of the episodes that she featured in, she just complained about men. And, like, I am all for female empowerment. I'm all for um, women being, you know, a, uh, a prime antagonist or a prime protagonist. Sypho was handled really well. But Carmilla was just complaining about people all the time. And then it just got to the point where I'm like, well, if you don't like it so much, if you don't like anyone you're working with, why are you trying to take control of this army? You, It seemed like she had a pretty sweet deal in Brela where... Her vampire forces were essentially taking over the town, so I don't know why she got herself involved in this in the first place. I just, I didn't like her, I'm not looking forward to seeing her in season 3, and I kind of hope that Isaac ends up being the prime protagonist. Uh, and last up, I have episode 8. Episode 8 and the ending. Um, I was really into everything that happened in episode seven i was just i was all in for it i was enjoying the whole thing and then the episode ended with alucard killing dracula and i thought to myself wait a second we still have an we still have an entire episode after this what are they going to do in the next episode and i got really interested i was like oh this is going to be like either some kind of um maybe from Dracula's perspective, even though we got a lot of Dracula's perspective, or maybe it wasn't the real Dracula, or maybe it was really getting us set to end on a cliffhanger to go into season three, but it really wasn't. It was the most paint-by-numbers epilogue you could find. They basically set everybody in their own spots, and it really just seemed kind of superfluous to me. Uh, they really could have folded that into the ending of episode 7. And overall, I don't think the um, the episode count really benefited the show. Uh, it being twice as long didn't help it. We got essentially two to three episodes of just filler where they could have really made a solid uh, five to six episode season out of this. And I was really disappointed by that. And I really was kind of disappointed by the ending as well. Because Alucard, the end, the ending for the season, the ending for the entire show, is just Alucard sitting in his room crying. I am all for character development. I am all for meaningful consequences having emotional and mental um, uh, ramifications on these characters but we didn't spend any time talking about Alucard and how much how much of a struggle he was having in that he has to kill his father this is his main goal in life now is to kill the man who birthed him the man who raised him almost in the name of his mother 
who his father is waging a war on in her name. There's a lot of intrigue in that. There's a lot of meaningful conversations that can be taken out of that. You you spent so much time in flashbacks and all this stuff. Give us a flashback episode on Alucard. I was interested in the character. He was great. I would have loved to see him struggle with this more. But we didn't, so the ending shot of him just sobbing into his hands was flat for me. And it didn't get me excited for the next season, which is what the ending of a season finale is supposed to do. So that was ultimately really disappointing. But overall, overall, if I take the entire season, the first season, the entire show into account, it's still good. It's still good, and I know I spent the last like 20 minutes or so being really negative, but it's still a good show with good storytelling, good action, great animation, good voice acting. It's still one of the best animated properties that has come out of Netflix. And if you liked the first season, you are going to like a lot of this. Uh, if I had to give it my arbitrary rating out of five, season two overall, with everything that I take into account, there was more good than bad, I would have to give it a three out of five. Uh, there was just a lot that happened that was good, but the bad that did happen can't be ignored and has to be addressed. So... That is my review for uh, Castlevania Season 2. Overall, like I said, it was good. Uh, there were a lot of problems with it. It wasn't as good as Season 1. It wasn't as tight storytelling-wise as Season 1. But I'm interested to see where they go in Season 3. They have announced that a Season 3 is in development, however long that's going to take, and I am excited for it. So... That is the review. Uh, if I missed anything, if uh, you would like to tell me what you thought about it, things you liked, things you disliked, if you disagree with me, let me know. Feel free to let me know on Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. You can also send me emails because I'm an old man and I still read emails. You can send any and all emails to GeekSplained at gmail.com. Um, yeah, so that is the review. Stick around after the jump for This Week in Comics. And welcome to This Week in Comics, name pending. The segment where we talk about the comics that I picked up and the comics that I think you should pick up this week at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, wherever you get your comics. Uh, we have a loaded week this week. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I want to make sure that I hit all of it. So normally we do just kind of a top five. Uh, this week it is seven. So um, bear with me. We're going to work our way through all of these. And um, we're going to get you going, get you some excellent comics, which is a lot of what's here today, this week. So the first comic that we have up is Daredevil number 612, uh, written by Charles Sewell with art by Phil Noto. This is Charles Sewell's final, final Daredevil issue. Uh, he's had a, I would say, pretty good run so far. Uh, 
certain story beats aside, uh, he has really put a spotlight back on Matt Murdock, and I am thankful that he took the time to make him as interesting as he could. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the next Daredevil run is going to be uh, Chip Zdarsky, and I can't remember who the artist is, I'm so sorry. But um, I'm here for anything that Chip Zdarsky writes, so uh, I'm excited for it. But this is Charles Sewell's final Daredevil, so we'll jump right into the synopsis. The whirlwind adventure of the fall ends here in an oversized and overwhelming daredevil epic as only charles sewell and phil noto could deliver it face forward true believers this one will have you talking for months so big talk uh this issue was interesting to me uh this is kind of wrapping up the death of daredevil storyline so there is a couple interesting things that happened in this issue um I won't spoil it here, but um, it's the synopsis is not wrong. People are going to be talking about it for a while, for better or for worse. Next up, we have Action Comics 1005, uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Ryan Souk. I think Ryan Souk is taking over art duties for the rest of the run. I don't want... Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. Uh, they, they got me in with that Gleason art, but um, it seems like... They're sticking with Ryan Sook, and Ryan Sook is a phenomenal artist, don't get me wrong, but um, what really drove me to this book and had me set it above Superman was um, Gleason's art. So we will jump into this. This is a continuation of kind of the Red Cloud storyline. Red Cloud is this um, uh, ethereal being who's been killing a lot of people and has, I'm assuming, is connected to all the fires that have been starting up. Uh, this is also post weird separation, not separation of Clark and Lois. Uh, something I really didn't like in Action Comics uh, 1004. So um, it's interesting. It's an interesting book. I'll jump into the synopsis here. The murderous mystery of the Red Cloud uncovered. Clark Kent draws closer to revealing a secret crime family that has operated for years in Metropolis, but the family's enforcer, the mysterious Red Cloud, proves she's a match for even the Man of Steel with an attack that leaves Superman breathless. Don't miss the last page shocker as we reveal the true face of the Red Cloud. Uh, for me, just no spoilers again, but uh, for me, I wasn't shocked at the... Uh, at the uh, reveal of the Red Cloud at the end of this book. Some people might be. But, um, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting route to go, and I'm interested to see where this arc takes us. Uh, next up we have Dead Man Logan, number one of twelve. Uh, written by Ed Brisson, with um, art by Mike Henderson, and covers by Declan Shalvey. I'm a huge Declan Shalvey mark. Uh, I really got hooked on him during Moon Knight, so I am down for all of these covers. The first one is incredible. Um, this is this is going to be kind of the uh, the setup issue to establish everything that's going to happen, but it's it's good stuff. So I'll jump into the synopsis here. Dead means dead. 
The writing's been on the wall for months now. Logan is dying, and he ain't getting any better. Sick from the adamantium coating his skeleton, his search for a cure has led to nothing but dead ends. But for once, he's actually trying to leave this world with some unfinished business. Can Logan take his last breath without slaughtering the X-Men again? Not if Mysterio has anything to say about it. Superstar creative team Ed Brisson and Mike Henderson, with covers by Declan Shalvey, is putting his own dog out of his misery with a bang. Parental advisory. So uh, this really is the kind of the swan song for Old Man Logan. He was the only Logan following the Secret Wars event, but uh, with the return of the main Marvel Logan in the return of Wolverine book, it kind of creates this weird, like, who is going to be Wolverine? So with this book, it really sets us up for the answer to that. Uh, looks like this is going to be the end of Old Man Logan as we know him. Uh, probably his death at the end with the titular uh title but i'm interested uh the parental advisory just tells you all you need to know this is going to be old man logan at his sharpest and bloodiest so i'm always down for rated r wolverine uh this is going to be a good interesting story uh for those of you who don't know in the original old man logan timeline he was forced by mysterio after he cast cast an illusion for um, Wolverine to kill all of the X-Men. So bringing Mysterio back into this is bringing his story full circle. So I'm interested to see exactly what they do with him. Uh, next up, we have the DC Nuclear Winter Special number one uh, with multiple writers, multiple artists. And this is kind of an anthology book. Uh, this is kind of setting up... It's a nice little holiday special featuring uh, nuclear warfare. You know, like every good holiday should. Uh, here is the synopsis for that. The holidays are tough enough as it is, but when you're living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, or, you know, 2018, the world can seem bleaker than ever. So do yourself a favor this holiday season. Break out your best eggnog and enjoy ten all-new stories featuring the world's greatest heroes, including looks at the futures of Batman, Superman, and The Flash, as well as many more denizens of the DC Universe. So again, this is an anthology story. Um, a lot of different artist and writer combinations basically dealing around like nuclear holocausts. Um, it looks like there's interest. There's there's an interesting story in there with uh, Batman six six six, which is uh, the world where Damian Wayne grows up to be Batman and takes on the mantle along with a deal from the devil. Um, and there's also a Superman one million, which I'm a big proponent for that character, so I'm always interested in seeing his stories. So definitely pick this one up. It's a little pricey at ten bucks, but for ten stories, it's a pretty good deal. Next up, we have uh, Marvel 2-in-1, number 12, another ending. Um, this is written by Chip Zdarsky with uh, art by Ramon K. Perez. Uh, this is interesting. Oh, the cover is also by Paul Renaud. Uh, this is interesting. This is the end of the Marvel 2-in-1 line. Uh, another book ending this week, this time written by Chip Zdarsky, uh, theoretically so that he could start focusing on Daredevil. But... 
I've had such a blast with this book. It's been really filling the role that the Fantastic Four did post-Secret Wars. And everything from start to finish in the series has been really good. And I'm excited, if not sad, for the end of this book to come around. Um, I'll jump into the uh, synopsis here. Our heroes were betrayed and left for dead. But now that the Fantastic Four are back, where's Rachna Cole? The Human Torch and Invisible Woman will soon find out, provided they get past the Mole Man. So it's really, it's a really full circle kind of story. Mole Man was their first real uh, villain in the comics way back in uh, Fantastic Four number one. But it's just great. Chip Zdarsky has a great voice for all of the Fantastic Four members, and I'm kind of sad to see him move on. But he is going to have his plate full for a little while now, so I am—I don't think he's going to be hurting at all. Uh, last or next up, we have the companion book to this, Fantastic Four number four, uh, written by Dan Slott with art by Sarah Pacelli and covers by Asad Ribic. Um, this is interesting to me. This is, uh, the cover shows four brand new heroes. Um, they really are patterned after the Fantastic Four. Uh, this is kind of the wrap up to the initial art, kind of showcasing how they all come back. Uh, so it's a good book. Uh, there's a lot of cameos because we still have that unresolved plot thread that all of the members from. Uh, Fantastic Four's history, everyone who ever was a member of the Fantastic Four are stranded with the original four on another uh, on another Earth and another one of the many in the multiverse. So they gotta figure out how to come home as well as deal with this new team. So here's the synopsis. Meet the Marvel Universe's new fabulous foursome, the Fantastics. Wait, what? Who are these imposters? Why are they in the Baxter building? And how is it that they own the lease? A strange new turn in the Fantastic Four's legacy. A secret side mission for the Thing. All this and a special appearance by one of the FF's oldest foes. So, again, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good book. It's a great reintroduction of the FF back into uh, modern continuity. This, uh, these past four issues have been really great, and we are now looking forward to the wedding, uh, the kind of wedding special issue next issue. So definitely pick this up. It's been really good so far, and I'm excited to see where it goes. And finally, we are going to end on a little bit of a down note here with Heroes in Crisis number three of seven. Uh, written by Tom King with art by Lee Weeks and a little bit of art by Clayman as well. Um, uh, okay. I'm really... <sighs> Man, this is tough. Um, I don't know how to feel about this book. Uh, the art is beautiful. That has never been disputed. It is incredible. Uh, Clayman is doing some of the best work of his career, and this issue really spotlights Lee Weeks as well, who's one of my personal favorite art artists. But this story, I don't. And, and again, we're only we're not even halfway through it, so I don't really know exactly how to judge the story. But it's like every issue gives me another reason to kind of not be into the book um it's frustrating but i'm 
I'm going to keep plugging on uh, because of you guys and because I'm interested to see where this goes. Uh, it was an interesting concept that I think kind of went off the rails. So um, looking at this synopsis, it's really not what happens in this issue. So I am going to cut here and come back with the hopefully accurate synopsis. All right, so we're going to do something a little different here. I couldn't find a synopsis that correctly uh, states exactly what happens in this issue, and I think that's because, unbeknownst to me, I found out during my little uh, excursion there that Heroes in Crisis got bumped from seven issues to nine issues. So the uh, listing, the synopsis for what this episode is supposed to, or this issue is supposed to be, is what I'm assuming is going to be further down the line. So I kept looking, I kept looking, I kept looking, I couldn't find a synopsis for this that really says what is going on. So I kind of wrote one. Um, you can let me know if it's good, if it's bad or whatever, but um, I just figured I'd whip up a quick synopsis that actually talks about what happens in this issue. And um, to round out our uh, special weekend edition of This Week in Comics, I will share right now. So here's the synopsis. Lagoon Boy, Booster Gold, Wally West. Foreboding dreams, a happy-go-lucky facade, and a family that no longer exists. Each of these men came to Sanctuary for help, only to find tragedy instead. Witness their journey leading to the tragic events that befell them and their struggle with trauma, desire, need, and reality. So again, just whipped it up real quick. Um, <laughs> uh, it gets a little heavy and I was trying to be as poetic as uh, possible. But yeah, so uh, here's a crisis. Like I said, a lot of feelings. This is a very Wally West heavy issue which you know i'm a huge proponent for wally west so um this issue is heartbreaking just as much as the previous issues have been but that is going to wrap up this week in comics uh once again um the i'll do a little uh recap so we have uh dead man logan number one we have daredevil number 612 action comics number 1005 DC Nuclear Winter Special number one, um, Marvel two and one number twelve, Fantastic Four number four, and Heroes in Crisis number three. Thank you very much to everyone who uh, is continuing to listen to the podcast. I really appreciate it. We've been growing like crazy. Uh, and it really is all thanks to you guys. So um, once again, thank you. Uh, next week we'll be back, fingers crossed, to our regularly scheduled uh, schedule uh, with the next installment in our Kingdom Hearts series, that being Kingdom Hearts Coded. Uh, it's, it's an interesting one. So uh, look forward to that on Wednesday. And for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening and so much for being patient with me. And we will see you next time.